0: Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett with part two of accepting the sinner without approving of the sin, accepting others as Christ has accepted us. You know, some of the most insightful secular writers of our time have pointed out a lot of our drive in life, a lot of our angst and our dysfunction goes back to the fact that we fear That we are not accepted. You know, the famous playwright Arthur Miller. He's the guy who wrote Death of the Salesman. Well, he stopped believing in God as a teenager. But decades later, he said this I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. I could not escape it. I still felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have somebody tell me that I was okay, that I was accepted that I was approved of. You see, as he grew older, he replaced the God of Christmas, the God of the Christians, with a God of audience approval. He was still looking for somebody to tell him that he was accepted, not under judgment. Unfortunately, he never found it. So many people spend their entire life trying to get the audience approval, the approval of that small letter G many times we begin our journey in life and and we don't get the affirmation that we need and so we look for it in all the wrong places. Madonna said this in Vanity Fair magazine, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feelings of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with fear. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's what always is pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Can you imagine the torment of living an entire life, trying to gain approval, but never quite achieving it? Leaning that ladder against the side of approval of mankind, only to discover you have leaned your ladder up against the wrong wall. At the end of your life, you're empty. You're, you're dejected. Well, I want you to know that it can be totally different for you. You don't have to worry about the approval of mankind. If Christ accepts you, then you are accepted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are learning today how we can accept one another as Christ accepts us, accepting sinners without approving the sin. Now, there's no doubt that those who are listening today have family members or or neighbors, those within their community, maybe those at the workplace, who are difficult to accept. They're difficult to get along with. Maybe they're difficult to get along with because their life is so diametrically opposed to the Christian faith. Maybe they're hard to get along with because they have a quirky personality. Some people are just extra grace required people, but we can accept them. Just because we don't approve of everything they do doesn't mean that we don't accept them. We accept them because they were created in the image of God. You know, even those who are diametrically opposed to the message of Christ have been created in the image of God. So Paul says that we who are strong, Romans chapter 15 is where we're going, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here we have an indicator that if you are strong in the faith, It's not just that you have a lot of knowledge. If you are strong in the faith, you have this capacity to bear or to accept the failings of the weak. You're not about yourself. You're about Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Paul says each of us, verse number two, should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So we learned yesterday that we should plan to accommodate the weak. And it helps us to be breaking this bondage of selfishness. Jesus himself did nothing in his life out of selfish ambition, did nothing out of vain conceit. Rather, in humility, he valued others above himself. You know why we have a hard time accepting those who are weak, those who are not like us? We have a hard time because we think that we're just a notch above them. Now, we don't think that we're way above them. We wouldn't be that audacious, but we do think that we're just a little bit better than them, a little bit higher than them. And so we must work on this accommodating of the weak, and we will learn that it slowly will break our bondage of selfishness. here's the second thing that we learned. Verse number three, Romans chapter 15, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults that have fallen on me have fallen on him. Jesus here is reminding us that when we are insulted, maybe Paul had in mind the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is reminding us, and Paul is driving home this point, that when we are insulted, we don't write people off just because they insult us. When we are insulted by other people, we are reminded that those insults that are given toward us, if they're given toward us because we're living in a righteous way, those insults have fallen on Christ. So be patient when being insulted. And the reason there's a benefit is because it binds us to Christ. Have you ever been so profoundly insulted by somebody that you don't know how to respond? Well, may it drive you to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about the fact that if we are suffering, a beating for doing something wrong and we endure it, what good is that, right? That's to be expected. You did the crime, you paid the time. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow His steps. Well, let's look at the third point. Number three, we learned that we should receive others as Christ has received us. And we can do that when we are planted in the Scriptures. When we receive somebody who is weak, Paul says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. So accepting those who are weak should drive us to the Scriptures, reminding us what was written in the past, and teaching us to have endurance, teaching us to be encouraged teaching us to have hope. Look what verse number five says. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we accept others, we should be planted in the scriptures because, you know, when you're getting out there and accepting somebody that you don't agree with, You're going to have to persist in that relationship and God will teach you to praise Him. Did you know the Word of God provides so much encouragement, so much endurance? So, yesterday in the broadcast, we looked at Psalm 119. If you missed what I said about Psalm 119, pick up the first part of this message and I know that will be a blessing to you. We're down to point number four. I should accept others as Christ accepted them and I should be purposeful in accepting others. It's how we and they see God's mercy. And now somebody wrote this, and I don't know who wrote it. I'd give them credit for it. But they said that the way out of life's frustrations is found not by resenting our limitations, but by accepting the place of frustration as a sphere of God's purpose. Let me unwrap that for you. When we look at being purposeful, and part of that purpose is accepting others, we are tapping into God's mercy. We are providing God's mercy to others. You know, the only Jesus your neighbor may see is you. They may not listen to the sermon online. They may not listen to Christian broadcasting or podcasting. They may not even come to church with you, but they see mercy in you if you make it a purpose to accept them. Now, Jesus provided the example, and as he provides this example by accepting us, we receive his mercy because he accepted us. We're to pass on that same acceptance to others, and this comes with a promise, and it also comes with a praise. But before we get into that, let's look at the facts about our being accepted by God. First of all, we were accepted when we believed in Jesus as our Savior. John 1, we're now children of God, we're part of his family. God accepted us, not because we were good, but God accepted us because of what Jesus did to make a relationship possible. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. We could be part of the family of God. Here's the second thing. Our acceptance is an undeserved gift. It's an undeserved gift given to us by God himself. You may be listening to me we say, well, I can't accept my, uh, my neighbor until they get their act together. Well, God didn't wait for you to get your act together before he accepted you. Ephesians 2 reminds us it is by God's grace that we have been saved, not by good works lest any man should boast. You see, we were unworthy, but as God's mercy, he still accepted us. So our acceptance is an undeserved gift from God. As we accept others, we are giving them an undeserved gift. Number three, we weren't accepted because of anything we did or will do. There is no work of any kind that could ever make us acceptable to God. It was faith in what Jesus did for us. That's how we became accepted. It was all the work of Christ, all made possible through his grace. Here's a fourth fact about being accepted by God. The death on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross. It demonstrates the Father's love. You know, the only way to measure God's love for you is what it cost him to accept you. Can I be so bold and so audacious to say, when you accept certain people, there's going to be a cost. Some people are going to think that you are compromising, and I'm not talking about fellowshipping with unbelievers. You can only fellowship with believers, but Jesus was a friend of sinners. You're going to go to work. You're going to have neighbors, and and uh, wise are you if you become a friend? The Bible tells us in Romans five eight, God demonstrated His love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The old King James says that God commended His love toward us. It means that God displayed or demonstrated His love for us. Why? He died for us when we were still without hope, when we were still in sin. Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to change and become redeemable. He redeemed us when there was no hope in us. Now, if Christ could do that for us, how much more should we be able to do that with our friends and our relatives and our neighbors? It costs him dearly to do that, right? It will cost you something to accept those who you strongly disagree with. And then lastly, Jesus' death. On our behalf, demonstrates our worth to God. Did you know that? I love how it's put in Romans chapter 8. As a matter of fact, I'm going to, I'm going to read a couple verses to you in Romans chapter 8 that will really help drive home the point how much God demonstrates his love for us. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse number 31. Paul says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, Who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, wouldn't he also give us everything else? Who dares to accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us. He was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Wow, what a passage of scripture that is, that Christ himself drives home the point that nothing can separate us from the love of God because Jesus has taken our penalty. He's taken our condemnation. Oh, I want you to know, my friends, you have no more pain, no more shame, no more guilt. It is eradicated because Christ demonstrated his love for us by giving his life for us. Now, that ought to really encourage you today as you get into God's word. Well, I want to look at one final passage today. You know, as I think about where we are as a nation, we are going through a time of uncertainty economically and politically, and a lot of things are turned sideways. Well, that's the way the world always has been. When Jesus was about to finish up his earthly ministry, he gathered his disciples together and they had the Passover meal together. And I want to spend just a few minutes in the moments that we have left talking about the Passover, talking about communion, and talking about the fact that we can have this opportunity to share the gospel wherever we go. Verse 20 of Matthew 26, it says that when evening was come, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they're reading, he said, "'Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me.'" Now, what blows my mind here? Jesus knew who that one was going to be. It was Judas, right? But yet here he is breaking bread with the one that was going to betray him. It says in the next verse, verse 22, "'They were all very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, "'You don't mean as me, do you, Lord?' The Lord replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But then it says, But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if it had not been born. Then Judas, the one who was going to betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. And while they're eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine, From now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And then when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So as we look at this passage of scripture, it is written about the night when Jesus was going to be portrayed. There's a lot of intense hatred between Judas and Jesus, but that Jesus is there offering himself as a covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. And then, uh, as we look at it, there's two extremes that we're dealing with. The extreme of good and the extreme of evil, but they're together. This night, the gravest night of human history. The greatest gift is being received, but it's also the greatest act of evil in betraying the Son of Man. And the giving has never ceased. Jesus continues to give to us today. So today, as you look at your life, Do you really have an ongoing personal relationship with Christ? Do you know Him as your Savior? And if not, why not make today your day of salvation? The reason this is so important is because we come into life with three primary questions. Everybody from time to time throughout the course of their life will look at these three questions. Question number one is, how in the world did I get here? You ever think about that? I mean, look at the circumstances that brought about my birth. I didn't have a say in the matter. It just happened. Two people got together. My mom and dad got together and conceived me, and I was brought into this world. But how did that all happen? What is the purpose of that? Did you know that God says that we are created in his image? You got here, and I got here because God created us in his own image. It says way back in the book of Genesis that God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, God breathed into Adam, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. some translation says, man became a living soul. You see, you were created in the image of God, and what separates us from all the rest of creation is the fact that God created us. And it says that God blew into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life, and that's when Adam was given a soul. When you look at all of creation, God gets through creating and he says, man, this is, this is good, right? But then when he created Adam, he says, this is very good. You see, there's a higher level of humanity than there is the rest of God's creation. We were created in the image of God. That's where we came from. You know, I think about where our world is today, and I've discovered that if you tell your children that you came from an animal, they're going to act like an animal. But if you tell them that they were created in the image of God, they have a distinct and a unique purpose in their lives. You are here because God created you in his image. Well, the second question that people ask the first being, why in the world am I here? The second being, what in the world am I supposed to do while I'm here? Well, that's a good question, right? So many people squander their lives, they wander around without any major direction, without any purpose. Listen, life is very short. James says your life is a vapor that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. You don't have a whole lot of time to waste on nonsensical things. Only one life to live, so soon it'll be gone. Life is very short, but not only is life very short, life is very uncertain. And we don't know what's going to happen around the next band. You know what I think about my life? The Lord has blessed me with some really good things that have happened in my life, but there's also some surprising, unexpected bad things that have happened in my life the good and the bad. Some of it was planned, some of it was expected, but most of it wasn't. I want you to know, life is short, and life is filled with uncertainty, but we can know the purpose that God has for us. There's a guy by the name of Solomon who is the wisest guy that ever walked the face of the earth other than Jesus. He wrote a book called the Book of Ecclesiastes, and he begins that book by saying, life is filled with vanity. Oh, vanity of vanities, or or hopelessness of hopelessness, he says. And he spends an entire book trying to find purpose in his life. He tries several things to find meaning in his life. He said, well, maybe the whole purpose of life is just get a whole bunch of money together, get a bunch of wealth together, and amass all this wealth, and maybe I'll find happiness in wealth. Well, Solomon was the wealthiest man that lived at that time, and he found that left them empty. He said, "Well, maybe the uh, the secret to a meaningful life is to work, work really hard." And oh my, he accomplished much in his life. Many of the great ruins that we see in the Middle East, and have you ever gone through Israel? Many of those ruins were things that Solomon had built or had his people build. And and he said, "Well, maybe if I just work hard and uh, maybe I'll find meaning in that." And if you've got a Type A personality, uh, there's something about getting it done, right? Getting a job done and and having that sense of accomplishment and but he says, you know what? That left him empty too. He said, well, maybe the uh, the purpose in life is just to just to enjoy a life of um, a life of sensuality, shall we call it? You know, maybe just um, having sex with as many people and as often as you want. Uh, maybe that's the secret of of joy in life. And so he had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines and. And, uh, and what, a, uh, what an amazing time he had, but uh, that left him empty as well. He said, well, I, I can't find uh, the meaning of life. I've tried work. I've tried wealth. I've tried uh, women, and it still leaves me empty. He tried one other thing. He says, well, maybe the way that I can find my purpose is by just pouring my life into being disconnected from life. Let me just go out and get drunk. Let me, let me try wine. And he discovered that left him empty as well. It didn't eradicate his problems. It didn't help him to find purpose and meaning. It left him empty. He says, man, I'm an empty man. He gets to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he concluded that the chief end of man is to obey God and keep his commands. That's where he found meaning and purpose in his life. Which leads me to the last question that all of us ask from time to time: What happens when we die? Every time I do a funeral, I always cover that question: What happens when we die? Just as I'm recording this broadcast, as I was on the way over to record the broadcast, I received a text message that one of our members' mom passed away, and I replied to that uh, to that text and. Uh, with prayers and encouragement, and says, you know, I am reminded that to be absent from the body for the believer is to be present with the Lord. And the moment you take your last breath here on this earth, you're going to take your first breath somewhere. Where are you going to go when you die? The soul, the real part of you, is going to live on forever somewhere, either separated from God for all of eternity or with Him for all of eternity. You see, the choice is ours. One of the reasons that I except people that so disagree with me, is so that I can share with them the good news of the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and those who put their faith and trust in Christ will have everlasting life. So today, have you accepted the free gift of salvation? If not, why don't you pray, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Simple little prayer, prayer of faith. If you just prayed that prayer, would you shoot me a text, 252 267 2365? 252 267 2365, and just say, hey, I just prayed to receive Christ today. That's all I have to say, and I'll get back to you as quick as I can. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on the broadcast. I pray that you will be able to accept others as Christ has accepted you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm praying for you today. And if you'd like to enroll your children in the Iwana program, you can do that. Just go to HRCC7 or Google in Hickory Ridge Community Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. We'd love to have your kids join us on Wednesday evening. We also have children's programming during our 9 o'clock and 1045 service on Sunday. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash one eight nine zero five five seven, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 AM. We'd love for you to join us.